chapter 2. We made it, people. We got through chapter 1. And here we are, chapter 2. So, chapter 2 really is a shorter chapter than chapter 1. There are two stories um, that go side by side. The first is a very famous story where Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. Many of you will know that story. The second is a story where Jesus goes into the temple and um, turns the tables upside down and throws out the money changers and tells them that it shouldn't be a marketplace, it should be a place of worship. Um, so, which is a bit of an odd positioning. The other Gospels put that in Holy Week, shortly before he's um, crucified. But this Gospel puts it right at the beginning, and I want to explain a little bit of why we think John has positioned it there. There are some people, some theologians who go, well, there must be two. There's, he must have gone and done that twice, once early in his ministry and once at the end of his ministry, but that's just, I don't know, I don't think that really holds. There's other people who are going, well, I think John's probably put it in the right place and all the other Gospels put it in the wrong place. I don't think that really holds. I think John has put it in this place for a reason, and we want to explore that. Um, Joe Nichols is going to be preaching next week, um, and she's going to be focusing on turning water into wine, and the wedding scene. You might go, well, why are you doing it this way round? Well, we're doing it this way round because I'm not here next week. Uh, next week, I will be travelling, um, heading off to Canada in my Jesus Collective role. So I'm away for a couple of weeks. Um, got a, hosting a Jesus Collective event in Calgary, then one in Vancouver, then one in Toronto, and then um, I've got a board meeting and I've got a retreat, my executive extended team, and there's a lot going on. So it's going to be a busy couple of weeks. But um, so we... Um, we thought we'd do it a little bit of a different way around. But actually what I'm hoping to do is do a, a, a little bit of an overview of why this order, why are these stories put next to each other, why are they, why they're the first two stories that we see off the back of John chapter 1, what really is going on. And so this morning I want to look at the theme of abundance and eternal life. But I just want to try and pull a few things together. Firstly, um, there are, when John wrote this, there were no chapter numbers and verse numbers. He just wrote it. So we, we've kind of inserted this sort of um, superficial like, ending of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. And so there's a flow. And if you remember, chapter 1 um, finished with Jesus referencing the Son of Man and ascending and descending and this ladder sort of referencing all the way back to the story of Jacob when he's fleeing, um, having tricked his brother out of his birthright and he comes to this place and he sleeps and he has this vision of the same angels ascending and descending this thin place where, where God and man are kind of reconciled where heaven is tangibly there and he wakes up in the morning and goes God is in this place and I did not know it and then he calls the place Bethel which means house of worship place of worship and so um, that's that's kind of where we end and he's had this conversation he's been calling his disciples Nathaniel is one of those disciples that he's called and he has this knowledge about Nathaniel and Nathaniel's going oh well then you must be the Messiah and he goes if you think if that, all it took was for me to give you that little bit of knowledge about yourself for you to think that I'm a Messiah wait you're going to see so many greater things than that and right at the beginning of chapter 2 we see Jesus is at a wedding in Cana which is where Nathaniel is from he's there we think with Nathaniel and the first miracle, the first sign that we see is Jesus turning water into wine 
at a wedding. So there's this, con there's this continuity. Nathaniel has been told you, but it's a collective, you are going to see greater things. And then we go straight into this miracle. So it started. There's momentum. The things that we have been taught, prepared for a little bit in chapter one are being built on now. It's, um, so we're building on chapter one, but the momentum has started. And that's one of the things. The, um, you might remember in chapter one that John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God. And um, we see that in the second story, the turning of the tables, it says it's Passover. Passover when Israelites, the Jewish faith, remembered God liberating them from slavery and bringing them out of Egypt. And they, it's called the Passover and they would have a lamb. And this connection between this Passover festival which Jesus is attending, and Jesus being called the Lamb of God. These things are connecting. He goes into the temple and he says, and he refers to it as my father's house, not our father's house, not God's house. He refers to it as my father's house, which follows on from John chapter 1, verse 14, where it talks about that he is the son from the father. Um, this father-son relationship within the Trinity that is introduced in chapter 1 is built on here in chapter 2. Jesus stands in the temple in Jerusalem and says, this is my father's house. He declares himself in that sense as the son of God stood in his father's house. And then there is this idea of this place of worship. The temple is this place of worship. And now Jesus is positioning himself in the temple, referring to it as his father's house. God is here. This is a house of worship, not a place of marketing and trading and business. God is here because Jesus is here. God was in this place and they didn't know it. It started, it's building. There's also this theme as you go through the chapter of where this is all heading. We and all these pointers of where this is headed. This is heading, as we know, towards the at the end of the gospel to the death, the crucifixion, to the resurrection. That's where all this is headed. And there's all these pointers in this chapter as well. It starts with on the third day. There's all sorts of people who are trying to figure out, well, what does it mean by the third day? Because actually, if you follow the sequence of chapter one into this, this is the fourth day, not the third day. But then also, it might not be that week. It might be a little bit later. And there's all sorts of people who are trying to do all sorts of gymnastics around it. And I just think, just, I think John's just going, look, it's the third day. The third day is going to be significant. We're looking through the third day when Jesus rises on the third day. There are other things we could pull out of that, but that's the one that I want to focus on here because it's pointing to where this is going. It's pointing to the resurrection. Jesus rises on the third day. There is wine at this wedding, but it's being linked to blood. I'll tell you how it's being linked to blood. But there is wine in this wedding. So it's connecting. It's really interesting that in the Gospel of John, Jesus' mother is only referenced twice. Once here, where she's the one telling him, they haven't really got any wine, you need to do something. And then Jesus says, my time is not yet come. My time is a very thing, very, my hour is not yet come. Very weird thing for him to say here to his mum going, could you help him out with the wine, Jesus? My hour's not come. But his hour, his time, is actually referenced in the gospel to his death, his crucifixion. 
So there's a connecting from this story to that story. Jesus' mother is only mentioned in this story and stood at the foot of the cross as he dies in that story. There's a connection here between this story of wine and this symbolism of blood on the cross that pays, which is this precursor to the Last Supper, the bread and the wine that symbolizes Jesus' blood. It's connecting this to that, the beginning to the end. This is what's going on. The Passover lamb. Jesus is crucified at Passover. He's referred to as the lamb. There is a fulfilling going on. This fulfilling of this key great moment in Israel's history. When God liberates them, when God liberates them from slavery, this moment in history, and there is a connecting of that to what Jesus is doing here. He is liberating all mankind, all humanity. And the Passover lamb is a fulfilling. Jesus is the lamb and they're celebrating Passover as he enters the temple. There is a fulfilling going on. And then they ask him, when he starts turning over the tables, the religious leaders come to him going, well, what authority do you have to do this? What sign can you give us? Like, how can you, how can you demonstrate to us that you have authority? I don't know what they were expecting him to do or to say, but what he says is, yeah, you're going to tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And unsurprisingly, they're mystified. Because they go in, they say, it took 46 years to build this temple. What are you talking about, you lunatic? You can't build this again in three days. And why would we tear it down anyway? It doesn't, none of what you're saying makes any sense. And to be honest, there's not a lot of points in the Gospels. I have a lot of sympathy for the Pharisees, but this is one of them. Because how on earth were they supposed to understand what he was talking about? But he gives them this sign of the temple being torn down and rebuilt in three days and he's referencing his body the incarnation the embodying of the temple the temple represented the glory of God the temple represented the presence of God and Jesus is now declaring himself to be the embodiment of the temple of the presence of the glory these are themes that run through the book of John that we should pay attention to. Marriage is another place where this is headed. The reconciliation of God and mankind through the cross, through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus. All these are in this chapter right at the beginning. The kind of the continuation of chapter one, the building on of chapter one pointing us to where this is going, the themes that run through the whole book. And for a theme that runs through the whole book, I want to talk this morning about abundance and eternal life. Because this is a theme that runs through the book in all sorts of ways. There is an abundance to this miracle or this sign Mary asked Jesus, can you help out with the wine, son? They've got a problem. They've run out of wine. Weddings, 
you know, weddings didn't last a day like they do here. They lasted five, six, seven days. And they've got to a point, and the wine's run out, and they've not stopped partying yet. And so Mary comes to her son and goes, can you help out a little bit with the wine? They've got a problem. Jesus gives her this weird response, and Joe can talk all about that next week. But 150 gallons he makes. He gets six jars, each of them 20 to 30 gallons. So if you just average that, then six, six of these giant jars, each with about 25 gallons in, is 150 gallons. Have you ever asked, been asked to help out with a wine at a wedding? Has anyone ever rocked up with 150 gallons of wine? Any of us? Like, there's an abundance here, isn't there? Like, there's a, oh my word, we had no idea he was going to do that. Like, what the heck was that? Like, he just does this abundance of wine. He goes, you want wine? I'll give you wine. 150 gallons of wine. Now that's a party. That is a party, right? 150 gallons. There is this abundance that's going on. They, and, and we see this, again, this theme that runs through that Jesus is always providing this abundance way over and beyond what people would expect. This wine wasn't just, oh, he's come, he's rocked up with 150 gallons. Like, nice show, Jesus. He is rocked up with the best wine. They are mystified. Like, where have you been keeping this stuff? This is the good stuff. You've been giving us Jacob's Creek to this point and now you've rocked up with the gold. No offence to anyone who drinks Jacob's Creek. But like, now you've rocked up with the gold. Like, this stuff's amazing. Like, so there's this abundance again, not just in volume, but in quality. This is the first sign. There are seven signs in the book of John. Seven miracles, we might refer to them, but John doesn't refer to them as miracles. He refers to them as signs. The Greek is arche. And there are seven. And I've written seven signs plus one because there are seven before his death and resurrection. Then there is one after his death and resurrection. Seven symbolizes weeks. So seven plus one gives you a sign that after his resurrection, he does one more sign, which is the beginning of the new creation, the beginning of the new week, the new age, the new day. But we'll get to that at some point. We'll get to that, John chapter 20, some point. So, um, yeah, seven signs, there are seven signs, and all of these signs relate to abundance. They relate to life. It's wine, and it's weddings, and it's bread, and it's health, and it's healing, and it's resurrection from the dead. Like, these signs relates to abundance and life. There's a, a more than that flows out of all of them. And this one has some significance. But they all, I think, have a similar pattern. We will discover more as we go through the entire book. But they seems to me that these miracles, these signs that we're told in John, each relate to a different Greco-Roman god, deity, demigod. Um, which is interesting. You might go, well, I wonder why that is. And 
And I think John's kind of drawing in. We've already had in John chapter 1, like, this is the extent and the expansiveness of the gospel. This takes us, you know, Jesus relates back to before everything and Jesus relates back to Genesis and he relates back to Exodus and the law and he relates back to the prophets and he relates back to the poetry books and everything in the Old Testament. Jesus encapsulates and fulfills. We've already had that in John chapter 1 and I think what now John's doing is going, and this isn't just about what's in the Jewish faith this is actually encapsulates all faiths. This actually encapsulates what's going on. Whatever gods you believe in, Jesus encapsulates and is greater than. There is this expansiveness that is going on. So there's this story of Dionysus, this, um, the god of wine, who had the gift of turning water into wine because he gave Iona the gift of turning water into wine. He was ascribed there would be times on Dionysus festivals when springs that were springs of water would start flowing wine in their mythology like he was the god of wine if you want to be a god that's a good god to be right you're always welcome at a party bring Dionysus along we'll have a great time like this is how they this is kind of how they like Dionysus was this god of wine and he was also he became such a um such a feature in their lives that they were linked it to that he was the God of eternal life. And here John is drawing a parallel with stories of Dionysus and going, Jesus is a bit like Dionysus, but greater than. Because this wine is the best wine. And there's 150 gallons of it. Like this Jesus is like Dionysus, but he's greater than. And so when you think about eternal life, Jesus is all about eternal life. Life in all its fullness. So there's this technique that I think John is doing, that John is using. That he's kind of going, I will take your culture, I will take the things you believe in, and I will demonstrate to you how Jesus encapsulates that and transcends it. Because Jesus is God. Not just a God. Not just a one of the gods. Jesus is God. The full revelation of what God, the Almighty, is like. There is this abundance and this eternal nature, this eternal life that is flowing through. And this is what Jesus is all about. I mentioned this already, but when the religious leaders say to him, what sign can you give us? I don't think they had in mind that he would reference the destruction and rebuilding of the temple. There is an abundance to what he is talking about. There is a scale to what he's talking about. They might have thought that he might quote some scriptures and give them some revelation that they hadn't seen before in the Old Testament. And John references that a little bit. He goes, oh, it reminded us of Psalm 69 when he said that he has zeal for his father's house. And like, so he's kind of quoting, like John's kind of referencing some of that. 
And that again is a pattern that runs through John, this sort of retrospective reading of the Old Testament that John keeps drawing attention to. But this sign that Jesus gives is so much bigger. The sign is, I'm going to die. You're going to kill me. And the greatest sign you're going to see is resurrection. The overcoming of death. The overcoming of sin. The renewal. A whole new kingdom being established. There's an abundance to how Jesus responds and how Jesus, how it was all portrayed in this chapter. You see, eternal life. I don't know, I feel like for us, eternal life kind of ends up being something that happens when we die. Or it's this idea going, I've probably referenced this before, I remember sitting in church when I was a teenager and they were talking about, oh, one day we will die and we will be in heaven and it'll be like church all the time. I was just going, no, please, surely, surely someone's got a better imagination than that. We have to sing this. We already feels like we sing this song forever. Like, really forever? Like, we have to have more imagination than that. We, we kind of go, oh, eternal life is just like never ending. It's very difficult for us to get our heads around. Eternal life is really what happens when you die. But that is not what we are presented with, as you will see as we go through the book of John. Eternal life refers to a depth and a richness and a wholeness. Profoundness in our lives. That is unattainable without our creator, without Jesus, without the spirit of God in us and through us. A life filled with God and his spirit, a life in relationship with Jesus. Eternal life isn't something that we check in when we die. We haven't... Have you ever played Monopoly? Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll play Monopoly, right? How exciting is it when you get that get-out-of-jail-free card? <laughs> you go, oh, yeah, I've won. That's it, game over. Like, you know you've won. As soon as you pick up that get-out-of-jail-free card, you're going, that's it, game over, people. You can have your hotels on Mayfair and Park Lane. I've got the get-out-of-free card, get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, it's over. No, and it's not, is it? You're going to go, oh, that's a bit of a waste of a chance card. It's not the most exciting part of the game, is it? Get-out-of-jail-free card. You usually have 50 quid around. It doesn't really change the game very much at all. But sometimes I think we view eternal life a little bit like a get-out-of-hell-free card that we, tuck, that we tuck away in our back pocket and kind of go, well, yeah, I can check it in at some point in my life, but, you know, I'll just trade it in when things get a little bit tricky or when I die, then I'm like, oh, get-out-of-hell-free card, there I am. Like, that was a game-changer. But no, it's like, we, you know, it's not, it's not the key part of our life, is it? But eternal life that Jesus is talking about is a game-changer. It's life now. It's a depth of life and a scale of life and a, a scale of imagination and wonder and mystery. It's, a, it's an absorbing of um, beauty and colour and depth all around us. It's a way of seeing the world that, tr that, that transforms everything. Eternal life now is something quite radical. John 
chapter 10, verse 10, skipping forward a little bit, but this is such a pivotal verse in the whole gospel. If I was going to ask you what's a pivotal verse, you'd probably give me John 3.16, we'll come to that next month, but actually John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, is a core verse in the entire gospel. This is what Jesus is about. It's such a key verse. I'm going to show you in a couple of different translations. NIV, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. King James Version. How many times do I stand up here putting the King James Version up? But here I am. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Message Version. I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. There is a present tense to those. Not just some future hope. I'm not saying we don't get to spend eternity with Jesus. I believe in the reconciliation of heaven and earth. I believe in the new creation. I believe in all of that where we get to live and live in the beauty of God's presence all the time. But we are actually invited into life now. The fullness of life now the wholeness of life now, the depth of life now, to experience the colours of life now in a way we haven't before, to experience the power of life now in a way we haven't before. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that indwelt Jesus, that enabled him to do all these things. We are invited to be participants in this eternal life now. Joe, do you want to come up? We have been given the same spirit. We are called children of God. Jesus is identified in this chapter as the son of God. He refers to God as his father. And now he invites each of us into a relationship which means we can refer to God as my father. We are all invited into this relationship. We are all invited to identify as children of God. We all get to participate. We are invited and equipped to live lives of abundance, lives of generosity, spirit-filled imagination, right now, right where we are. My question this morning is what's stopping us? Who wants to live this life? This is the invitation that we are presented with. This is, this is what John chapter 2 is building on and is demonstrating to us. There is an abundance here. There is a depth of life. What's stopping us? What are the things that get in the way for us? I'm not saying life doesn't have challenges. I think it's fair to say Jesus' life had some challenges too. But are we oriented towards Jesus? Are we pursuing Jesus with everything we've got? Are we making space for the Spirit in our lives beyond... Uh, 10 minute prayer or a little shout out every now and again or church once a week are we making space for the spirit in our lives to flow to prompt us to nudge us to 
empower us, to release our imagination, to stir us, to embolden us. We are invited to be children of God, filled with the same spirit that was with Jesus. Jesus said, you will do greater things than I have done. There is an invitation. I want us to worship. I want us to respond. But I wonder actually if some of us would like some prayer this morning. What are the obstacles? Might be obstacles we just need to go, you know what, God, I'm putting that down. This might just need to be a moment of confession or surrender. It might be that there's something in the way that you're just not in control of. Might be a health issue is really just stopping you living life to the full. It might be some relational context that you're not in control of that's really impacting your life. And you want to see God do show up. You want to see God do something profound and miraculous and liberating in this moment. Well, we'd love to pray for that. Whatever it might be, do you want to live lives? of depth and beauty and wonder and the colours and the breadth and the scope of what Jesus is talking about? Do we want to be people who live extraordinary lives? There's an invitation this morning.